Hello, and welcome to the Meaning of Life podcast, hosted by Dr. Susie Farello. Dr. Farello is an associate professor at California State University, East Bay. She does philosophy based on lived experience and works as a philosophical counselor. You can find some of her work online on academia.edu and psychology today. Thank you. Hello, everyone. We are sadly at the end of uh, our seasons of the podcast Philosophy Get Personal, Gets Personal. But today I have a wonderful guest with me, is Susanna Chappell. She is a social philosopher based in London. She is currently an independent scholar affiliated both with the London School of Economics and King's College London. Her past work was in the area of political theory. She left academia just over 10 years ago, thinking she wouldn't return, but she started writing philosophy again after becoming aware of problems of injustice in medicine and realizing that applied philosophy could do something good here. She currently works on issues related to moral and social philosophy of mental illness. She identifies as a mad woman philosopher. Her current main projects are a book on the philosophy of self-harm and parenting to young children. Thank you, Susanna, for being here. It's a great pleasure for me to have you. Thank you for having me. Look, uh, if you don't mind, I would like to start from... uh, uh, this uh, identification that you mentioned in your bio, uh, a mad man, uh, sorry, a mad woman philosopher. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean for you? Well, I think primarily it's a kind of political identification. So madness is a political identification. So I've got experience with serious mental illness for um, much of my life. And I think for much of my life also, that was kind of downplayed both my family and professionals and myself, you know, so then I get depressed, so then I get uh, anxious. But then, you know, I kind of, I faced up to it that, you know, it is more than that um, without going into details, (laughs) too many details. Um, So I identify personally as someone who has this experience of serious mental illness um, that's kind of, recurrent over my life it's um kind of a chronic illness disability um mm-hmm. i think um but also um nowadays there's um kind of um people with experience of mental illness and who also um do um activism or uh, advocacy or research i think med with a capital m just like uh, kind of the equivalent of queer or crip mm-hmm. um, is for disabled people. Um, it, it, it's more of a political identification that identifying with a lib- liberatory practice of trying to change the world to, to kind of make it better for people who have, who experience the world differently. And usually what I've come across is the um, the opposite of mad is sane, but, you know, we could use non-mad or uh, mm-hmm. or something like that. So I'm kind of starting to think it's sane. Does it sound a bit like deprecatory? Funnily <laughs> 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 enough. Um, because it can sound a bit sane when, you know, people identify as mad. <laughs> use oh, it. Yeah. But uh, like my friend and co-author, uh, Sophia Yapshon says, this doesn't mean that you know, identifying as mad doesn't mean that we're mentally ill all the time or, you know, psychotic mm-hmm. all the time or something. Um, yeah. it, it just means that we have this experience and and we want to 
or at least for me it means that I also want to turn it into a kind of liberatory practice through my research because I really don't think I'm cut out for no. activism. Um, I think, you know, emotionally, I don't think I'm suitable for that. Mm. Um, advocacy, you know, I you end up kind of doing because you hear about things and then you try and help people or you point out, well, maybe we should be doing something differently, uh, which is, I see advocacy, but... Um, but I also call myself particularly as a mad woman philosopher because I think gender really plays a difference, plays, mm-hmm. plays a difference when it comes to, to mental illness. And um, often we, the way we think about mental illness tends to be kind of stereotypically as women's mental illness. Um, but also I think it's for women because women have to do so much of the emotional labor. Um, in a way, mental illness is more noticeable um, so, you know, if your emotional life breaks down um, and you you have to do all this emotional labor, I mean, parenting is one example, but, you know, even in the workplace, you know, women are often the ones doing the emotional labor, then it's, it's just a lot more noticeable. And then philosopher is kind of, you know, more obvious. But I think it's just as I've, I've read an interview with Judith Butler, and she said that for her queer doesn't mean so much about you know who I'm who she's sleeping with at the time (laughs) it's about you know it's it's not like kind of you know a sexual thing in that sense it's about um it's about a liberatory practice um towards different types of people Mm -hmm. well I have so many questions here uh about uh uh first person experience writing in philosophy because yeah. we were discussing that elsewhere when uh, we speak about philosophy of uh, psychiatry or uh, philosophy of uh, pathologies and so on uh, the person with mental illness is always the other and mm. the writer is uh, there with his computer trying to fix it uh, so I, I wanted to ask you how it feels to be able to be the one talking for yourself and to be able if you can write on a first person experience basis and also the other branch I was curious about is this emotional labor you are talking about that separates men from women instinctively when I think about this distinction I think of you know the uh, evergreen accusation of being hysteric of being too emotional uh, being uh, exaggerate with their um, yeah feelings and emotions I wonder if that is part of the labor so um, I leave you with these two questions <laughs> all right um Actually, and I think there's more than three questions. So I think okay. in general, in uh-huh. um, we talk too little about the personal or, you know, the way we talk about the personal can be odd. Um, often people in philosophy will, non-med philosophers especially, and, and neurotypical philosophers, because uh, I've got, uh, I'm neurodivergent as well as a person experience of, of mental illness, have this... Um, you know, they'll say, well, of course, this is how it works. This is how we reason. This is how, you know, this is how action works. This is how reason works. This is how emotions work. Mm-hmm. It's not, of course, about it. No. Um, because even I think with, within, um, you know, people who are neurotypical or, you know, do, uh, within the kind of broad societal norm, I think there's a lot more mental diversity than we recognize. It's just that we don't, don't even have 
ways of thinking about it or talking about it. So one good example is um, the recent discovery <laughs> that um, not everyone can see mental images. And, mm -hmm. you know, people saying after they found out that there is this difference, people are saying, oh, but I always thought that was, you know, just a, a figure of speech in my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. Well, people meant that literally. And I find that that comes up a lot in um, philosophy of psychiatry as well. So um, mm -hmm. Richard Gibbs in his recent book on madness says that, uh, writes the beginning of a chapter, something like, of course, when people describe experiences like, um, and then he, he gives some example of delusions of like the clock tower being upside down or something like that. Um, of course, we think it's a metaphor. And I thought, well, whenever I read those things, I never thought it was a metaphor because to me, you know, I've had experiences like that too. So, I, you know, those kinds of things happen. Um, <laughs> you know, it happens. Yeah, it's not a metaphor. Uh -huh. um, whereas some things um, that people described, I kind of thought it was a metaphor. <laughs> and it, you know, like some of classical phenomenology for a long time, I like Husserlian phenomenology. I thought one of the reasons I didn't get into it is because I thought, well, I just don't get this. This is some very complicated metaphor that I am not getting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously there's something wrong with me because I'm just not getting, you know, what's being referred to here. Like, what is he trying to talk about? And then it turns out that, you know, people often mean these things literally about like time experiences and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, that's that's different. <laughs> but until you start reading, you know, until I, before I started reading, um, phenomenology of psychopathology um you know I didn't realize that these things happened or you know no normal people are different uh -huh. I think that that in a way comes back a little bit to one of the things you've said um mm -hmm. uh, which is um you know what kind of experience do we center like who is the other mm -hmm. um and in a way I just think you know, where are the books about for neurodivergent parents on how to parent a neurotypical child? Oh yeah. You know, yeah. that would be very useful, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, where, where are the where is the where is the 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 um the phenomenology written by uh mad philosophers explaining to mad philosophers but non-mad phenomenology is like and say and kind of centering the different experience and saying well you know actually all of these things people take for granted mm -hmm. need packing so you know I think it's a question you know what experience do we do we center and we always center you know the the kind of uh, socially normative experience mm. Where do you think madness starts? Because, you know, there's Basalia that says that from uh, closeness, uh, nobody's normal. Uh, but yeah. as you said, uh, if we stand by these, uh, then we risk to downplay uh, uh, serious mental illness. Where do we draw the line? I think that might actually be personal. I mean, there's always going to be borderline cases. And mm -hmm. I think focusing on, oh, you know, how do we draw the boundary at the end of the day might be a, mm -hmm. not horribly useful. Um, and like I said in a paper on mental illness uh, published last year, um, you know, an experience which may be, you know, just about manageable, okay, um, under some circumstances, you add something like 
you know, the demands of motherhood. Um, and then suddenly you experience it as an illness. So I think partly it is, I guess, is there a difference between madness and mental illness? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, um, you know, can non-mentally ill people be mad? <laughs> it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer. <laughs> um, but again, I think the boundary cases, you know, determining the answer is going to be very individual and personal. So yes, I'm, 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 I'm not sure about it. Yeah, because, you know, I, I think of those uh, normal philosophers uh, who had, uh, you know, mental problems. Um, now I don't want to throw anyone about on the, under the bus, but... Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> but, you know, there's uh, quite a number of philosophers, of the important philosophers we have in our textbook that were writing um, philosophy from uh, the normal normal standpoint of view saying as we were saying and uh, they were dictating what is the of course what is the normal what is the metaphor and so on and uh, their life was completely upside down so um, uh, I, I wonder how much is uh, again a matter of uh, majority of normativity of uh, I don't know disparities uh, that are uh, dictated from uh, from above and uh, shape the way in which uh, philosophy should be catered. So the academic paper should be written in this fashion, the book in the other, uh, not too much lived experience, uh, and so on and so on. I think that is possibly changing. Just talking to people in terms of how much how much they talk about you know, their lived experience that seems to be changing in general. I was just having this conversation with some people um, even today. And, you know, how much to include about your own thinking, about your own process as well. And I think people are slowly starting to include a bit more. And I think looking at other disciplines like anthropology, where people have much more closely at these issues, is also useful. Um, but also personally, I feel that um, because where I am in my life, I, in a way, I can afford to um, take risks. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, people often couldn't afford to take risks. And stigma is a very real thing. So, you know, you encounter all kinds of being told you can't do that. Yeah. Um, and... Also, when, when it's about lived experience, there's also an expectation that you do um, you do then kind of provide, um, you know, all kinds of details. And um, this is something that hasn't happened to me yet, but, you know, <laughs> this seems to be a question of a matter of time, but. I mean, it hasn't happened in, in peer reviews. It has happened in other concept, contexts. Um, you know, people get peer review responses to submitted articles saying, well, you say you, you know, you have a lived experience perspective on this. Uh, well, we really want you to describe, you know, details of, you know, what happened. You not just say, you know, not just talk in general and uh -huh. philosophically and say well I've got lived experience no we want you to describe that lived experience what was it like and I mean this seems quite invasive 
Yes. And often, you know, it's unnecessary to that specific paper, which is why the person's excluded it. Yeah. Um, and obviously, there's all this is not just um, related to um, philosophy of psychiatry or, or mental illness. It's, you know, you find it um, whenever people talk about anything related to, mm -hmm. the, to their identity. So, you know, it could be uh, race. Um, queerness you know mm -hmm. in all of these in all of these fields people have you know faced these demands which are quite invasive um and i but i think especially it, it gets difficult when it comes to um mental illness because we are quite vulnerable um so uh, talking about a lot of these topics it's not easy and it's not just that it's not easy or it's emotionally burdensome, but it could actually literally just send us over the edge. If you, you know, there are some things I can't write about because, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to become ill doing this stuff. It's that's yeah. not the point. Mm -hmm. um, but people, even people who, you know, work in this field, who, who have written a lot about mental illness, um, you know, sometimes just like don't realize quite how vulnerable some of us are. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, trying to trying to set boundaries can be very difficult. And um, that's also why I'm also, I'm also writing about um, the role of lived experience or subject relevant lived experience that what I call minoritized scholars in mm -hmm. um, Kind of uh, human sciences, which includes mm -hmm. you know anything from philosophy to medicine, uh, even climate change science. Um, you know the people who are personally uh, impacted by mm -hmm. the uh, issues. What do we actually want from them? Because we you know there's a lot about epistemic um, oppression and epistemic um, exploitation and and those kinds of things. Um, but not so much about, you know, what do we do? So that's also mm. something I'm trying to write about how to, how to, you know, have some kind of principles of not uh, unwittingly using people because people's intentions are often good, but mm. it's just kind of taken for granted that, you know, we will share. <laughs> how do you think... Uh, uh... Uh, the worst way to use people uh, expresses, uh, I mean, uh, uh, I think it's, uh, I agree with you, it's beautiful to give them voice. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, we don't want to exploit this voice. Uh, can you give us, uh, uh, maybe you already gave us an example of how to exploit this voice when I, someone becomes too nosy and wants to know details that uh, do not, uh, are not relevant for their paper. And uh, yeah, this is uh, really part of how crazy is the, mon the, the world of reviewers. Uh, I mean, I, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, sometimes I got rejected uh, uh, one paper of mine uh, got rejected because this uh, person said, ah, she looks depressed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just, 
yeah, it's <laughs> completely beyond the scope of a review, uh, a, a comment uh, like this. And also it's stigmatizing, right? Oh God, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, a paper on uh, um, pregnancy. Uh, mm. postpartum and so on so clearly the easiest thing to say is uh, yeah clearly she's uh in uh, postpartum depression <laughs> okay that's uh, completely over the top but anyway i don't know do you think that this could be part of uh, the medical injustice uh, that uh, uh, we experience in daily life i mean i think of how often uh, common people don't have a voice because there are policies and ways to do things that are imposed from above. And uh, theoretically, academia should be the place where uh, ideas uh, are uh, brought to life for uh, lawmakers uh, to see them and uh, change things. But then in academia as well, uh, people who actually experience uh, uh, medical injustice cannot uh, uh, speak. So how do we do? Do you think uh, this problem reverberates in uh, medical injustice? I know that you're writing about that as well. I think, so is your question more broadly about medicine or, or more narrowly about? Broad, I like okay. broad. <laughs> All right. well, um... Or wherever you want to go. Um, I think you know there's there's I think in general there's a lot of discrimination in medicine against um against people, you know, like the, the what we do have clear numbers on is you know um for for uh, people of color there's um you know a lot of discrimination. I mean you see the same thing for disabled as people as well, and I think for mental illness as well, there's a lot of discrimination. I mean for my personal experience, I've never had big, bad experiences with psychiatry, but um where I have had bad experiences um because of my mental illness is that people look at your medical record, they see, you know, the mental illness and you, it could be anything and it's dismissed. Um, physical symptoms are dismissed. And ah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's that's something that's happened to me so many times. Um, and, uh, you know, this is something I think the Royal College of Psychiatrists every couple of years then says something about how this is really horrible and we need to do something. But the Royal College of Psychiatrists cannot really do anything because all of my experiences were with other specialties. So, you know, good luck with that. Um, so, you know, psychiatrists have always taken my, you know, my physical illness seriously. It's just mm -hmm. the rest of medicine doesn't always cooperate. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah. I think, you know, you get a it's lot of discrimination. Yeah. And I think, I think a lot of this really is rooted in societal discrimination um, still. And not just discrimination, but societal attitudes about mental illness and madness. Um, you know, whether that's actually just mild mental, milder forms of depression, from milder forms of depression to like really serious mental illness. I think, you know, society still, well, we talk about it now in theory, but the basic, the basic kind of underlying ways of looking at it haven't really changed so that's something I want to want to write about more why actually you know these social attitudes we have are very problematic and then I think you know what you see in academia 
and in medicine are just you know versions of that wider social attitude towards yeah. mental illness. Um, and then one one thing I've I've blogged about is uh, just um, the I mean I'm really interested in discourse and language use. I've been very interested in in that since my PhD, which I've I've written about deliberative democracy. Um, mm. So you know. There's a lot of language used there. Yeah. So I've really been interested in, in discourse theory since then. And just the kind of discourse we use um, around mental illness and the way we use mental illness discourse. Um, you know, our mental illnesses are very much acceptable um, when, you know, other slurs wouldn't be. Um, and that's something I've blocked about, even though I'm not planning to write on, but what I do hope to write on more is um, the way we use the kinds of metaphors we we, we tend to turn to when we, we talk about mental illness, and especially when it comes to psychosis, you know. So, you know, often, you know, psychosis is often compared, compared to dreaming. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of sleep metaphors People are not quite awake when they are mentally ill. And there's something, I mean, obviously when someone's asleep or unconscious, then that compromises their agency completely. Mm-hmm. Um, so to put you on the kind of asleep sex spectrum, <laughs> it means that you stop oh, the right. person. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. And this this comes back to your example. <laughs> Sorry, it's, it, I'm coming around in a really long way. Um, to um, you know, postpartum slash depressed. Uh-huh. You know, we can't really take this person seriously in what what they're saying because they're not quite there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then, um, but there are other metaphors we could be using, especially for psychosis. Um, so having small children. I just think it really reminds me of play as well. Um, mm. You know, the toys can fly. All kinds of things are possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the bed is a spaceship. Um, <laughs> so in a way, actually, that that is just as, that could be just as good as metaf- metaphor, but there you have some kind of agency and a person inside rather mm-hmm. than, you know, somebody's... Yeah, unconscious. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or partially, partially yeah. conscious, or whatever. <laughs> you know, and that's I think you know, that, that's something that I want to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, Do it, yeah. And I think I think that that comes up in your example as well. Like, let's not publish this paper because it doesn't sound like this person is fully there. Mm-hmm. Um, they even diagnose me, and they say, "Okay, she's depressed." All right. Exactly. I mean, but you know, if this person is not quite there, she's not there. Uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. 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 Which is a form of epistemic injustice, obviously. One of the things I wanted to ask you is what philosophy helped you to channel, uh, you know, your ideas, your fights, uh, your passion. And uh, now you mentioned discourse theory, which our audience might not be familiar with. Okay. So if you can uh, say a few words would be great. If there are others, I would be very curious to hear. Um. I guess I'm just interested in general um, about the way we use discourse and the way it shapes the way we perceive the world. Um, there's, you know, there's different ways and approaches to discourse theory. So, you know, whether you're into Habermasian communicative ethics or or whether you're um, 
more concerned with um, the way that um, language shapes search. Uh, maybe I could, I don't know if you normally include links. I mean, actually, and the other thing I, I, I really should mention with my, you know, and this is really my neurodivergence as well. Um, embarrassingly for a philosopher, um, I'm very incredibly bad at names. So <laughs> half the time I want to say, oh, you know, that book, but you know, you know, and it's in that blue book right there. And that's why usually I, I have my phone out, you know, also in conference <laughs> and because I'm always making notes and, and trying to like put things down and relate things to each other. Um, but yes, I'm incredibly bad. We can include links. Uh, I yes. completely relate. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. But mainly, mainly for myself, my concern with, with this course is the way we use language and the, the way it shapes our perception of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's multiple ways we can, that can be, um, you can relate to that. But, you know, a lot of it is... You know, there's kinds of link. Basically, it's you can you can take like a linguistic um, approach to it or a philosophical approach. You know, there's various ways of thinking about it, or even you know thinking about um, um, so and you know and how to how to do things with words. That kind of you know, there's just so speech theory. All of that, I think, for me, broadly feeds into all of this, and it's it's come back to me what what I want. Be, and again, it kind of relates to my neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. Is that I think what makes it really difficult for philosophy is to identify, you know, as someone who who loses their mind sometimes. Is that your mind is your research tool? Oh. You can't go and do some lab work or something and then draw on your results no it's opening in your mind so I think it's a lot trickier because you know it's like your research instrument is broken that's so on point uh, yeah you know it's uh it's as if uh, there's more to explore because uh well it's also walking more on the line because uh, there are so many doors that can be open because uh, you accept that these doors are there because they are real, as we were saying about uh, conscious, unconscious, uh, playing and so on. But it's also more triggering because uh, every time you write on a topic, especially if you use uh, that tool that is in the topic as well, uh, you are... Um, yeah, your intimate life is uh, upside down because uh, you are uh, exploring that room and uh, you are looking under the carpet and moving that couch and uh, everything is uh, upside down. I remember when I wrote uh, about um, uh, love, uh, sex and intimacy, of course I divorced <laughs> and my life was completely upside down and I was writing about that topic and I was feeling an idiot uh, because uh, uh, who gives me the authority about writing something like that while my life uh, is going through such a, uh, such a mess, such a disorder. But I don't know, at the same time, uh, there was so much to look at, so much to explore. Here I come back to something we, we said via email uh, in these days. I don't know that writing about happiness, right, or uh, good uh, uh, vibes, topics, uh, it, it can be really nice, it can be, you know, uh, uplifting and so on, uh, but it's not what we write about. 
uh, it's um, it's when we, you know, I don't know if it has a bias, but it's something that it's part of our lived experience, uh, something we can cr- be critical about. Love, it could be a wonderful topic. Uh, but as you wrote somewhere at some point, love too can hurt badly. Um, so... I don't know, being a philosopher is really tricky because uh, you have to pretend to be impartial, to be, you know, a researcher, to be above uh, the parts uh, and so on. But the tools you are using uh, come from your mind. I think even love, um, so (laughs) for me, philosophy Uh is kind of like a love affair. Um, Uh You know, I love philosophy I love writing I love reading Um, you know I just love doing it but I mean as you know nowadays all those books about work doesn't love you back I think you know (laughs) and reviewer two definitely doesn't love you back (laughs) you know um, I know the feeling yeah but you know philosophy itself it's the love of Mm -hmm. wisdom right and our for me it's genuinely love and um I I listen you know I like listening to kind of sad love songs thinking about research which is actually I'd like to say do not say this in a grant writing workshop because people will look at you like you just you did uh? like you know you genuinely are you this is a mad woman philosopher who listens to sad love songs Thinking about her, you know, her research. (laughs) You know, there is a lot of unrequited love. (laughs) I love philosophy and philosophy is of an age, it cannot love me back. (laughs) It's it's just, it's just like, if you, if you love, if you love a tree, it's not going to love you back. It's, Uh yeah, that's a beautiful. And I'm sure that, you know, phenomenologists will, We'll, we'll we'll start thinking about I don't know Buber or something and, and think about oh you know the Ida relationship or whatever but um, for me you know it's just like this and also I experience emotions very uh, intensely which I've discovered I I mean I again this is something I've kind of discovered um, much more reading phenomenology of psychopathology because mm. the, the the weird thing is you start reading this stuff and you you realize your emotions are pathological, uh, mm-hmm. the way you experience your body is, is pathological, the way you experience time is path. I mean you just you're just like no actually let's just at first that was really hurtful but now I'm just thinking no 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 let's just think about you know I we need to think different ways so I'm I'm thinking of it as you know it's different and I think you mentioned towards the beginning that you know how do we think about the normal and the kind of experiences people had I think for me mental illness falls under the kind of category of mental difference Mm -hmm. so even within relatively normal just like with being able to see images on your mind I don't know the range of experiences and but anyway so I experience emotions very um, intensely so that really then helps me to kind of to work on these topics because it's something I feel intensely about both philosophy which I love and then the topics which 
you know, a lot of social injustice can make me very angry. So more than one therapist has said over the year, over the decades, uh, without any prompting, that I seem to have some kind of real like justice, you know, hang up on on social justice, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um, which they didn't say it like it was a bad thing either. But you know, it's this is just something you know I get very you know very frustrated and angry and um, you know just reading the news. There's always something to get very angry about. And then, you know, if I read, I don't know, ableist theories or whatever, I get very angry about. And in a way, research is somewhere I can take these emotions. Um, So, you know, if I throw a book across the room, really angry, um, no one's going to call me hysterical. Mm -hmm. fine you know I'm hysterical or whatever but you you can call me hysterical if you want but you know it's it's somewhere I can take those strong emotions Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not just about it's not just about um it being emotionally exhausting it's also a way of channeling emotions because you know all of that upset would still be there at least this way it's channeled and the reason I'm writing about mental illness is because you know I've I've had these things since I was about eight um you know I'm in my 40s I'm kind of used to it (laughs) so it's not so difficult um really what got me into into research and writing were um, personal experiences of really bad pregnancy and birth trauma Mm-hmm. Um, with my second child also I had pregnancy trauma so you know these experiences of really bad pregnancy trauma mm-hmm. and just seeing you know the kind of even when people want to help you that the knowledge isn't there on how to how mm-hmm. to help women who are seriously ill during pregnancy um, and I think there's a lot of that in I've seen in psychiatry as well um, you know people want to help you mm-hmm. but then, you know they need they need we 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 need more stuff to to help people um and I can't basically the pregnancy stuff I tried um I I can't even go to a talk or a conference or anything I can't read about it I can't I definitely can't write about it Mm -hmm. um it's just it's it's too difficult whereas the kinds of things I do write about are things that I think are important but I, I feel I can I can manage. So I'm writing about self-harm, which ah yeah. My running joke is that all the creative writing books say, oh, write what you know. So you know, I'm writing about self-harm <laughs> because I, I used to in the past self-harm. But it's a, you know it's something that I feel comfortable writing about. But again, also the way I, I try and balance uh it is by um well, firstly, you know, I there's a lot in philosophy about, you know problems with self-knowledge so even though I've got lived experience with mental illness or self-harm um, I don't base um, my work entirely on my own experience so I use that to as a kind of starting point and a way to mm-hmm. think about mm-hmm. you know start thinking about things but then I read a lot mm-hmm. uh, both uh, qualitative research and interviews and so on mm-hmm. um, I read philosophy I read anthropology sociology I read a lot of social sciences um on 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 these issues um so then then I burden that out and that can then lead to the problem that uh what I think about self-harm kind of personally might end up contradicting what I think about self-harm professionally yeah, that's- 
the beauty and, of discoveries, right? Uh, and there, there is there is definitely cognitive dissonance uh, going on, but it's uh you know I, I need to to burden it out beyond my own experience because my own experience yeah. can be taken to be uh, universal. universal. And also, you know, my experience is not, luckily, I'd say it's not, you know, that exciting or special in that, um, you know, within the normal range for, my, <laughs> for, for, the, for the issues I've experienced, which is a good thing. Like you don't want to be the, you yeah. know, the, the one in a million person. Um, and I, I think it's a really good thing that there's a lot more um, testimony now about first personal um, work, both in research, but also the biographical writing. Um, so, you know, um, like Alan Sachs's, um book about her schizophrenia. I think it's, it's really good to have more of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I wish there was more of um, more writing that also captured the ordinary experience, which is not that of highly educated, uh, affluent uh, white women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there is, as with everything, um, the, the the danger of elite capture um, of issues being and what's important being guided by can be guided by elites, and I think that's why I also. When it comes to the social aspects, you know, I think um, mental illness is linked to to poverty, low educational achievement, um, you know, lack of uh, lack of permanent social relationships, all these kinds of problems, which I'm not experiencing at all. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, those are the those are the issues that I want to also always bring in. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know people needing needing help thank you for doing this i i appreciate your work we we certainly need it how did you encounter philosophy the first time i was curious well i studied um politics and social policy at the London School of Economics and government. It's it's government oh, department, so. politics department. Oh wow! Uh-huh. And um, I, as a first year undergraduate, uh, I was a compulsory course in history of political thought. Uh-huh. Um, and that was really much. It was too much for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> also, coming from Hungary, the educational system there was is very different, and it's a lot more about rote learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know any kind of uh, individual thought is usually just suppressed mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure you know it's like traditional educational systems right so mm-hmm. it was a huge leap for me um, to move to the UK um, under very disordered circumstances anyway because um, <laughs> I was very mentally ill at the time and mm-hmm. um, and you know, moved to a foreign country, different language, very different everything. Luckily, I've met very good friends, including my husband, who are, you know, they're still friends. And mm-hmm. they find it, you know, they, they find it my mental illness as well as everything else. And um, so then I thought I would do some, do politics. I, I, I wanted to do more. And, you know, I was really interested in political science. Um, but then when I was doing my master's, I took this course with uh, Christian List, who became my PhD supervisor. Mm-hmm. And um, he, it was, um, I just became interested in theories of democracy, which is political theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I taught in politics departments. And 
didn't really think of myself as a philosopher, a political theorist. And then now, really, I mean, I'm still doing applied philosophy, which is political philosophy. Mm -hmm. Applied mm -hmm. philosophy, I'm just doing different applied philosophy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I see yeah. that now. Yeah, sorry, it's political. Fervor and uh, philosophical mind found the perfect marriage. Yes, so it's it's a kind of, you know, just kind of a progression of topics from politics mm -hmm. to political theory to Makes to a, applied philosophy. <laughs> yeah, 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 completely. Look, a time flew by, and uh, we are ready for uh, our last big question. All right, <laughs> which is uh, the meaning of life. If life has a meaning, what would you think that would be? Um, for me, it's love. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, but like I say, I love philosophy. But I also, I also have this. I know it's going to sound very soppy, but <laughs> I just have, have this feeling of love for the world and especially other people, like people in general, rather than particular. Mm -hmm. um and it's it's something that just you know it's just for me um it's very important um love love of the world love of people you know love of others mm -hmm. um love of beauty um mm -hmm. so for me you know that's that's what the meaning of my life mm -hmm. is around i don't know <laughs> it's it, it's <laughs> Uh, I yeah I can completely see there's a, some sense of truthfulness that come every time you experience love in a strong way yes and you know I guess for me I guess um, I guess it's just kind of like a, something that guides my life mm -hmm. it's, it's not a chosen thing it's a it's an experiential thing mm -hmm. um, yeah. there's no philosophical argument behind it <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you so much, Susanna, for this beautiful uh, talk we had. Uh, it was really a great pleasure for me to get to know you a little bit better. Thank All right. you. Thank you very much.